0: I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, which is where we will be the entirety of our time in the Word this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that are on the ends of the row uh, and uh, aren't exactly sure what page number that would be or how to get there, there's a table of contents early on. If you find the book of Ephesians, it should be on the first page, so we'll be ready to go. And you'll be with us. We began last week uh, our step-by-step walk through the scriptures God has given us in the book of Ephesians. This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus to encourage them to walk in unity of faith, to hang on to the first love that the Lord had given them. What we saw just in this introduction is the transformative work of the grace of God where Paul, who had been a violent persecutor of the church, had become an apostle, a messenger of Jesus, a representative, an ambassador for Christ. And these people in Ephesus who had been involved in in, in things that would be uh, just mind rattling to us are now called saints and holy ones by the grace of God that God's grace radically shapes and reshapes who we are and our very identity. And we saw that in God's gift of grace and peace. And it's such an amazing depiction of God that, that while we were in opposition to Him, the, the, the scriptures say in enmity, almost at war is the language of the New Testament, that we were in open opposition and confrontation to God and that, that rightfully having the ability and power and right to judge And destroy us from the position of strength offers peace to us. And and we're going to go further into that as we begin in Ephesians 1 to really, I think, start to plumb the depths of God's grace as Ephesians 1 in this section begins to just list all of the things that God has done for us. And that God has done in us. Now I, I want to preface it that way. And also tell you that it's unfortunate. Because Ephesians 1 verses 3-14 through 14 that we're about to read. Are also some of the most heatedly debated passages of scripture. And, and it's a little frustrating. Because if you just step away from any debate for a minute. These should be the scriptures that we celebrate the most. These should be some of the verses that we just can't get over. And rather these are verses that we end up. That we can't quit fighting about. It reminds me of a kid who gets a go-kart on Christmas morning. But instead of hopping in and enjoying it, decides to, to pick an argument uh, with, with the little brother about how exactly the internal combustion engine works. Enjoy the gift, let's argue about it. And then, you know, a little sister comes in because she's a real sweetie and says, well, is it fair that everyone didn't get a go-kart for Christmas this morning? And, and I have a feeling that a loving father at that minute wants to smack his children and say, guys drive the go-kart and i have a sense when we begin to jump into ephesians 1 and it becomes kind of a place of arguments rather than a place of celebration that our god our father in heaven is looking at us going guys can you just rejoice in this amazing gift you've been given and and, and knowing that if you're familiar with ephesians 1 you know why this is an issue Uh, if you don't you'll figure it out soon enough i think uh but but here's here's what I want to do here. We're going to stay in Ephesians one, three through fourteen. We won't do anything else. I, I don't want to cross-reference and pull because what happens with this particular passage is if you've got experience reading the Bible, what you'll start doing is connecting dots and cross-referencing to make your case. Okay? Of however you take this, and we're going to make our case here, and we're not going to do that. We're going to stick with these words and these verses. Is there value to seeing what other passages say? Absolutely. But the risk of that is that we'll start taking whatever theology we already held and imposing it upon the verses we're about to read, right? And, and just a note, when we read the Bible, if it doesn't regularly confront the assumptions we already hold, we're not reading it rightly. Because every word of the scripture is written to speak truth and good news to ridiculously fallen men and to address our fallen condition, which means it corrects us always. So, so we don't want to do that. I I don't want to, I don't want to jump around from cross references. Additionally to that, after hearing this, I've heard all of the arguments from the other side. You don't have to either. Email them to me. I've heard them. You can if you want. I'll be in India. So feel free, because um, we don't want to have an argument. And, and now this, in, in full disclosure, so you know, I have leanings towards what some people would call a Calvinistic view of theology, which means this, I believe that we are incredibly sinful. I believe that we're so sinful, we're so warped by our own sin, that we will never pursue God. We won't, we can't. And I believe that, because I'm just honestly trying to turn to look at the Bible and take the plain words of the Bible plainly. Because of that, God in his great grace has chosen to save us as messed up as we are. And we couldn't do anything to grab that to earn that, okay? Now, I'm not here to beat that drum. I had to tell you that. Some of you may have known already and that's okay, but you can tell, that's not our drum we beat every week. But I think you need to know where I'm coming from, and just to be honest about that, none of us who have read these verses don't have an opinion on what they mean. With that said, I want us to pray, I want us to jump into the Word of God together. Father God, we thank you for the words we're about to read, and what they mean for us. We thank you that you've looked on us as wretched sinners, and you've adopted us as your own, that you've Pour out your grace lavishly upon us. We thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you have sealed us by your Spirit, that you have given us an inheritance and guaranteed it by the power of your mighty hand that we can rest in your salvation because it doesn't depend on us. I thank you that your son Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin out of his great wealth of infinite righteousness and we can come before you as children. And Lord, I pray that today as we come before you and your word that you would restrain any part of us that wants to pick a fight and argue and rather... Give us a heart to celebrate what you've done. I pray that you'd help me as I go through these to, to focus on your scripture, to focus on your word over and above whatever theological system we might have. And I pray that in doing this, we would have a deeper appreciation for your goodness and your glorious grace, and that that would make us a people of proclamation who share the good news with the world and a people of praise who delight in you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So let's jump in chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, what I want us to do is just to take a moment and list some of the things, the big things in this scripture that God has done for us, that God has given us. Now, I would encourage you in your small groups to really take a more detailed look and begin to jump into your Bibles and circle every word that says, this is what God did for us, this is what God did for us. But what I want to do for the sake of time and, and clarity is to focus on the big, kind of the big concepts. Of God's activity and God's grace in our lives. And so I want to begin with this. God has done amazing things for us. And the first of them mentioned here is he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Just just kind of think for that a second. That in Jesus, because of our relationship and connection to Jesus, God has given us, out of his goodness, every spiritual blessing. Blessing. All of them. And and I'm not making this up right now. And this isn't me saying you're going to get the coolest car that you ever want and you'll never get sick. This this isn't that line. But what this is saying is that, that God has granted to us, His children, everything we could have wanted or imagined spiritually and more. And that those things are kept for us, it says, in the heavenly places. And so what, what's going on here, if you want to jump into the mechanics of this statement, is that God has granted us this inheritance with Him as His children. We've been brought into the family. And that those things are kept and guarded for us until the day of our going to be with Jesus or His coming back for us. With every spiritual blessing. One of the practical pieces of this that's so important is that Christians ought to be able to walk in contentment. We shouldn't be so wrapped up in consumerism and consumption. You know, the average American is is living paycheck to paycheck, not because they don't have enough income to live, but rather because their consumption has outmatched their intake. And all that is, and all the debt that we've piled up, not only as a nation, which is staggering, but individually, which is just as staggering, is what Dave Ramsey accounts as, as financial whining. Where God says, look, when you're ready to have something... I'll give you the resources to have it. And Dave says, here's the problem. We want it now. We're like two-year-old children. And so we go buy it now. But the problem, the root of it, is not our math. It's our lack of contentment. Because we, we think we, if we had that other thing, if we bought that item that they're selling on, on, on you know, the home shopping network at 2 a.m., which that should tip us off that it's not a good product, by the way. But we want to buy it. Because they promised us. I used to make fun of the, of the magic bullet I don't do that anymore because we have one I found out it's a quite helpful product <laughs> my life isn't fixed but my food processing needs get accomplished a little easier and I think that's the sell right you've got to have this you need this and then we buy it and we realize we, it didn't help and we run around trying to fill this need when the Bible says look I've already given you everything you could have imagined and more. It's just not physical, earthly stuff, which, hey, the Bible says is like kindling. It's all going to be burned someday. But everything that really matters, you've been given it to abundantly if you're in Christ. And it's kept secure for you. Built into that is this reality that we are one with Jesus. Jesus which ultimately is the gospel, the good news. is not so much that you get a ticket out of hell and into heaven, although that's exciting, but it's that you get, you're one with Jesus. And so all the blessings that are His, we are recipients of, not because we deserve them, but because we're united to Him in faith. Because He has said, that one is mine. The work of the Holy Spirit brings us into Christ where we receive these wonderful gifts and blessings from our Father. Next, I want you to see the Scriptures tell us in verse 4 that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This is where it gets tenuous, right? Because the Bible said plainly here that the way we walked into a relationship with Jesus in oneness with Christ was that before the foundations of the world, God chose us to be in Him. Now, again, we could argue about this. And that's why we're not cross and we're not jumping around. This is, this is what it says. It's just plainly what it says. He chose us. And, and this is the exciting part of that. It had nothing to do with us, our behavior or performance. It was prior to us ever doing anything good or bad. It was prior to us doing anything to try to earn God's affection. I know the people who struggle with this the most is interesting to me. Because as I, as I kind of had these conversations with people, I find that folks that, that grew up outside of the church and outside of Christian homes tend to really embrace this idea much easier than those who did. Because we kind of have this sense, those of us who were raised at least in a religious environment, that even though it was never said, that we were good and that's why we were saved. That's why God loved us. But the Bible says before you'd ever done anything, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And he did it to make us holy and blameless. That's his work in us. The old theologian and preacher uh, C.H. Spurgeon said he was glad that God had chosen him before the foundations of the world. Because if he had waited to get to know them, he most assuredly would not have chosen him. And resonate with that. The exciting piece of this, guys, is that our salvation, our belonging to Jesus, was not dependent upon us. And that means staying his is also not dependent on us. It's God's grace, power, and might that has redeemed us. He continues to tell us in verse 5 that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now that word predestined is again it's hard because well what does that word mean right that's the first well it means predetermined determined beforehand if you want it in Greek pro orizo, still predetermined, marked out beforehand. the Bible says that God in his great love for us predetermined to adopt us as sons. Now, I find that we, we look at the imagery of adoption and we're comfortable with that. We like the idea of a father adopting us as an orphan child and lavishing his love on us. That, that is something that we, we tend to celebrate. And go, God is so good to us. But, but we miss how adoption works. Which is parents look at a child and choose them. That's how it works. Is it a parent... Who wants a child? They they walk into some some children's home, some orphanage. Maybe, maybe here in the states where we have the foster care thing, where there's some event where you get to meet the kids, and and and, and their heart is attached to this child. And say, I want that child. We we've had the joy of in our family seeing uh, Leisha's sister in the process of adopting two little boys, a six year old and a four year old. We can't say their names because they're not hers yet. And 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 she had a picture of them. She had a picture of the boys. And she and her husband looked and prayed over They said, those are our sons. They're ours. And from that moment, those were her boys. Those were his boys. Now, they they brought the boys home. They've been in their home a couple months. And you know, one of the things the boys have done? They've disobeyed. They've acted like boys. They've done what boys do. But that hasn't changed anything. And these boys may at some point rebel against mom and dad and say, I wish you weren't my parents. But it doesn't change it. You know why? Because they didn't get to make the choice mom and dad did when they chose to adopt those babies. That's the imagery here. He said, God is this loving father who looked at us as as orphans in our squalor, unable to do anything to rectify the situation. Because look, if we could produce parents for ourselves, we would have, but we couldn't. And so he came and he said, you're mine. I'm taking you in to my family. And it's by my predetermined will to do it. Just as Christy and Eric went to that first gathering where they met those boys, determined that they would be their sons. That's the imagery. And, and see, this is where some of us begin to get this rub because we don't like that. But, but listen, guys. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that, that while you were sitting there orphaned, incapable of making a home and a family for yourself, the God and King of all creation said, this one is Mine. And see, some of you will fight against that. And some of you understand what it's like to never be chosen for anything. And this is good news. God chose you to be His. He adopted us as His sons. And using the word sons, it's not to mean that there weren't sons and daughters, but the language of sonship was implicitly connected to having an inheritance. That you received something from your father. And so he uses the language exclusively of sons. Not to, not to offend any ladies. But rather to remind the connection of what we would inherit. What we would receive from our father. And that we all shared in rights as adopted sons. That's what God did for us. Next the scriptures tell us that in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins. You think about that. We deserve judgment from God. And the means of purchasing our redemption was by the blood of his only son Jesus. That's a costly adoption. See the average international adoption runs somewhere around $30 to $40,000. It's expensive. Private adoptions in the states not much cheaper. The price of our adoption was the blood of Jesus. He sent His only begotten Son to the cross to take upon Himself the full weight and penalty for our sin so that having been judged and punished where man deserved to be judged and punished, He might forgive sinful men and women like us. He's redeemed us by the blood of Jesus. He's bought us out of our judgment. He's forgiven us. Not only has he forgiven us, he's redeemed. He carries with it this concept of being cleansed, of being washed clean. So not only freed from, from the penalty of our sin, but also the guilt and shame. So much so that the scripture is going to say it's like being born again. There's a new life. We don't even account you the same way the world did because you're a new creation in Jesus. So I want you to think about this. He didn't just declare not guilty. He, he took all those stains and filth from our sin and he washed it away. The Bible says so we'd be white as snow. We've been fully, entirely redeemed. So that the guilt of our sin, the shame that is brought is gone. Now, we may hang on to it. The Scriptures are going to implore us to let go and forget about what lies behind. But God has washed us clean. And He's done that. I love the language here of Ephesians 1. In verse 7 and 8, He did that according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. This is not the language of a father who tolerates his children. This is the language of a father who loves his adopted kids. So much so that he just, out of the fullness, out of the infinite wealth of his goodness and grace, he's been lavishing his love upon us. Without restraint, pouring it out on us. That's the heart of a father. To give to his children good things and to give them to him in abundance. He's been good to us. Additionally, the scriptures tell us that we've obtained an inheritance. Having been brought into the family, adopted, we now walk in an inheritance from our Father. The New Testament will remind us that if we walk with Jesus, we'll also reign with him. So Jesus, who receives all the promises of the covenants entire reign over all creation when He returns in its fullness, reigning from heaven at this day, that as His brothers in the sense of this language, we would be co-heirs with Him and walk in His inheritance, so that if we walk with Him, we will reign with Him. We've been given everything we could imagine and more in Jesus so God is our Father, and we share in the inheritance of Jesus. And He did this according to His will, which He works out perfectly. Did you notice that? According to His will. I mean, there's no question of whether or not it will happen. He made known the mystery of His will according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. And it says that He works out all things according to the counsel and His will. God has chosen to love and redeem us, and nothing can stay His hand. Because he works out everything according to the counsel of his will. Nothing gets past him. This God has been good to us and he's granted us an inheritance. Now, if you're like me, you recognize quickly that you could foul this whole thing up. We're just wrecks. And this is where the promise of inheritance in the future begins to be something we're willing to trade in for comfort in the present. That's where we begin to get discontented with the blessings God has given us because we don't see them, we don't feel them all right now. They're an inheritance. That's something that comes later that are stored up for us in the heavenly places where Christ is seated. But I want you to see the final words of these verses because it begins to give us a clear picture of His love for us. That not only has He given us these things, He's done it. He says in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Look what he did for us. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. So by the Holy Spirit, we have been sealed. For the day of salvation and receipt of our inheritance. What this means is that the Spirit holds us in the hands of God. And we sang that this morning about His hold on us being unbreakable. That the work of the Spirit of God is to maintain our relationship and connection to Jesus so that we continue to walk with Him. So our faithfulness is ultimately not a result of our effort, although we're cooperative in it. It's the result of the Spirit of God working in us, sealing us, holding us into the day that we receive our inheritance. And just as we entered into the family by the will of God, we remain in the family and receive the blessings of the inheritance of the family by the will of God and His power. Not our own. We've been sealed with the Spirit. Now is when it gets difficult because we want to start talking about mechanics. Like, how did this work? Because I, I just read very plainly that God chose us, but it felt like when I became a Christian that I chose God. And so, did, did he choose me or did I choose him? And I would say, yes. And here's the problem. Before we get into the mechanics of how, I think it's important to talk about why. Why did God do this? He wasn't obliged to. We had no expectation of it reasonably. Why is God so generous to us? And this passage clues us in on that. If you look at chapter 1, verse 6, you begin to see God's motivation. That he did this, watch, to the praise of His glorious grace. If you look at verse 12, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Again, in verse 14, He's the guarantee. Of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That the intention, that the motive in God choosing us, God redeeming us, God adopting us, God wiping away our sin is to draw to Him a people passionate for His glory. A people who are worshippers committed to Him. So God's intention in blessing us is, is so that He would take those that are unreasonable to expect would have been the redeemed, do something amazing in their lives so that the world would see the majesty of His power and might in redemption. It's the story of Israel. Why why does he call out this small nation that's enslaved to the most significant world superpower in the ancient world? So that when they defied him and he crushed Egypt, the nations would know of his might. And Israel, as a recipient of his grace, would know of the Father who adopted them and who loved them so much that he ripped open oceans and drowned armies. So that we would remember that our God has saved us with a mighty hand. That's why we, there's no place for pride in this. Is that The point of this is that we're all so messed up we're not going to turn to Him. And He's so good to us that He saves us. So that when we experience redemption, it's not because we were smart and we chose it, but rather because God's good and we have no other answer. If you were to ask me today, Skeet, why did God save you? Uh, Humanly, there's just no reason. There's no reason. But what what I can tell you is that when I go back to my hometown, I'm not the guy that left there at 17. i got a long way to go. But I'm not that kid anymore. It's the grace of God. I I, I, feel, I can honestly tell you that if Jesus had not intervened in a drastic way in my life, calling me to faithfulness to Him, I might have been a nominal Christian because I was raised in there and I might still occasionally go to church because culturally that's what you expected to do where I grew up. But, you know, I would probably be a guy committed and, and kind of just completely consumed with the acquisition of wealth. I would probably be a functional alcoholic, a guy who only stops drinking so he could make money. Just to be completely honest about where I f- would find myself if it weren't for Jesus. But Jesus is faithful. He didn't look upon me and, as a rebellious little kid and go, oh, I'm going to save this kid and he's going he's to place his trust in me, but he's going to rebel, he's going to walk away, he's going to struggle, he's going to give in to sin and temptation, and then I'm going to continue to work. I'm not going to walk away from this kid. For what reason? Because he's awesome? No! Look at him, he's a brat! So that when I transform him to whatever degree I can, I'll be honored in that. That's why he does these things. So there's no place for an arrogant Christian. We aren't the smart people who figured it out, we're the people who God looked upon in the cesspool of our sin and saved us. There's no place for pride. So whatever your view on the mechanics of how predestination works, whatever your view on the mechanics of God's election, one, you can't deny it. The Bible's obviously teaching it. So uh, if you want to disagree with the Bible, then you're on your own there. Now, what it means, we could have a discussion. How the mechanics operate, we could have a discussion. But here's what I'll tell you. Whatever your de- opinion on the mechanics, it had better not rob God of any honor. Because that was the point. It had better not give you any credit. Because he saved us. Well, how did he do that? Chapter 1, verse 4 says he chose us before the foundations of the world. Chapter 1, verse 5 says he predestined us for adoption. Chapter 1, verse 7 says by the blood of Jesus he forgave us of our sins. Chapter 1, verse 8 says he lavished his grace on us. Chapter 1, verse 11 says he predestined us. 113 says he sent a gospel messenger to preach the good news. Chapter 1, verse 14 says he sent his spirit as a seal to hold us in him until the day of our inheritance. So what did I do? It's important to know what you did. You believed. You believed. Now, I want to point something out. I want to talk about this. I don't want to go in depth to it. But the Bible says that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And that at some moment in time, We believed. And ultimately, our faith was a response to God's pursuit of us, not something we originated in ourselves. I mean, atheists don't just wake up one day and go, I think I'll believe in Jesus. Nominal Christians that that call themselves Christians and in the end don't actually trust Jesus, don't wake up one day and go, all of a sudden I'm convinced that my life has to take a different trajectory. God does that work in the heart. As we continue to read Ephesians, you'll find out how He does it. I don't want to steal anybody's thunder in the coming weeks. But I want you to see the emphasis of God's redeeming, saving, and sealing us is on God's activity, not ours. It's on what God has done, not what we have done. And what we have done is trust Him, believe. We receive the gift that He gave us. That's your part. To trust Him. I want to just make an appeal. If you're here today and you never placed your faith in Jesus. Something you haven't done. Maybe, maybe you, you, you said a prayer at some point when you were seven or eight. But you never placed your faith. And I, I don't know where you're at. I think that's between you and the Holy Spirit to sort through. Today could be the day where all of those blessings that are described. Where you're adopted into the family that it occurs not because you've earned it it's not because you've been good enough or you've done enough religious duty that now god's going to be pleased with you and accept you into the family that's why i think the imagery of adoption is so helpful is that we're depicted as these little children who who can't do anything about the situation and and god didn't wait for us to grow up and You know, learn how to manage our own uh, bodily functions and wipe our noses and eat with a fork. That's not how adoption plays out. When you adopt a child, you adopt a child, not a young adult who knows how to balance their checkbook. They're a mess. And no adoptive parent has ever said, okay, this kid's got some issues they need to work through, but after the quarter pounded counselor gets them through that, then I'll adopt them. That's not the heart of an adoptive parent. They take you messing all, runny nose, dirty diapers, the whole deal. And the decision is, I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to love this kid. I'm going to discipline this kid. I'm going to teach this kid. I'm going to care for this kid. I'm going to provide for this kid. I'm going to wipe their nose, change their diaper, bathe them, feed them, clean up the mess on my wall because of that kid eating. Yes, the wall. All of it. Because I love them and I've chosen them to be mine. That's the story here. And and there's an invitation to you to that. You don't have to get better for him to love you. He's loved you in Jesus. And he'll change you. He'll make you holy and blameless. That's what he's going to do in you. But he's going to do that. You can't. You can't do it. If you're like me, outside of uh, of pursuing the Holy Spirit and his power, all of our efforts of self-improvement ultimately fail. What I'll tend to do is learn how to to cope with some sin pattern and make it not so obvious to other people, but then it kind of works its way out in other ways. You're like the person at rehab who breaks one addiction but picks up another, which is kind of the normal piece of the process. We're just shifting sin patterns until the Spirit of God begins to walk in us and give us victory over these things. He'll change you. He'll transform you. You have to come to Him first. Otherwise, there's not much hope. In fact, I told you we wouldn't cross-reference anything, but we're going to lie. The Bible says without Jesus, we are without God and without hope in the world. That's where we stand. So the invitation is there for you to place your faith in Jesus. That He died for your sins, that He rose again, and then all those blessings, they, they become yours. That inheritance becomes yours. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. Not for your glory, but for His. So that you could become someone who has experienced His love. Who has been transformed by it. Who praises Him. Not only in worship as we gather together, but in proclamation. The way a child who who loves and is proud of their parents would, would tell of their parents to others as they get older. Would speak positively to the next generation of how their father raised them or their mother raised them. It's ultimately the consummation of our love for Him. And when you consider all that He's done and, and what He's laid before us is in this offer of adoption, for the life of me, I can't understand why we wouldn't take it. Because look, when we're all just honest about it, Christian or non-Christian alike, when we just get to the base level, we know that something's broken. And we know that we can't fix it. We can buy self-help books until Jesus comes back and we, we still won't fix it. We'll have some cool quotes and, you know, start drinking decaf, but in the end we'll still be busted. We can't fix this sin condition in us. We all know it. And we can throw up smoke screens all day. What about the dinosaurs? I don't care about the dinosaurs. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Yes. In your heart right now, do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're a sinner? You do. Because you know it. And you know that you need a Redeemer. You know that you need a Savior. You know you can't fix it because you've been trying your whole life and you can't. And yeah, we can put on a nice suit and we can mask it, but that doesn't change it. And deep inside, we know that it's true. We know that what the Bible says about us is being sinful and incapable of fixing It It is true because we've been trying our whole lives to fix it. You need a savior. And Jesus is your only hope. And there is a God and he loves you and he sent a son to die for you. And he's longing to make you his own. I believe the fact that you're here today even. Is evidence of his call on your life. You notice that's what he did. He sent someone to to proclaim the good news. And then you heard it and you believed it. So if you're here today, uh, two of the three things have happened. You've heard the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. It's been preached to you. You've probably heard it before. You've taken that in. And the question is, will you believe him? And if you're a Christian here today and you have the inclination to want to get into the arguments over what all these things mean, can I just ask you for the next 72 hours to press pause on that. And every time you want to um, maybe bring up this topic for one of debate, rather than that, go through that list of things that God has done for us and rejoice in them. Rejoice in them. Because it's amazing. It's amazing. And however you want to work out the mechanics, the point is this. God did this for His glory. I didn't do this. It's a gift that I received. And I'm gracious. And when that kind of humility begins to walk into our souls, it begins to set the table for what God wants to do in the rest of our lives. When we understand how broken we are and how generous God is, we become more generous we become more gracious. We learn to walk in humility. And it's a learning process. I know. And sometimes the curve is steep. I can attest to that. But that's what he's going to do in us. So celebrate this. And I pray that for some of you today. This is, this, this is, a, this is a spiritual birthday party. As the Bible describes this as a new birth. It's a new life. And it's available to any who will believe that Jesus died for your sins and arose again. He's going to radically change your life and He's going to come again to establish His kingdom. We're going to pray. We're going to have a time of worship. I want to ask uh, the elders, if you guys could... Um, I'll join you, but we can just get a couple guys over on this side and our pastoral staff as well. A couple of you guys over here and a couple over there. If you have anything that you would like to be prayed with, it doesn't have to be particularly related to this sermon. If you would just uh, join us, we want to pray for you as uh, we worship as a body together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the infinite grace and love that you've lavished on us, adopting us and making us your own. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored this morning as we worship you. Lord, I pray that you would be at work drawing men and women to your That we'd get to celebrate the birth of, of someone passing from death to life and as they begin this new life. Cleansed from their sin, forgiven from its penalty, washed from its shame and guilt, welcomed into the family, given an inheritance that you have sealed for them by your Holy Spirit that contains every spiritual blessing. I pray that... We would get to see that today. And that we'd celebrate that today rightly, passionately rejoicing in you, our King, Redeemer, and God. We pray this by your Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.